Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, March 16th, 2011. Yeah, it's uh, Love Wednesday plus one. <laughs> Is that how that worked? It was D-Day plus one after D-Day, uh, the Ides of March. Somebody thought they were being cute, and they said that the book should be named Bell's Hell. Cute. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And uh, we di- <laughs> we chronicle it here. This is a um, a program where you, you kind of get a front row seat for all the silly things that are going on. And what we try to do is long-form discernment. And the idea here is this, is that discernment is all about comparing ideas. It's about comparing doctrine. It's about comparing theology. It's really not about personalities, even though there's personalities who are out there selling different ideas. In fact, Rob Bell is going to, I'm sure he's going to be laughing all the way to the bank after this controversy blows over. Yeah, I said that a couple of weeks ago when uh, the video first was leaked out onto the internet. He and and Harper Collins are going to make a truckload of money. It's it's going to be, and just, he's going to be just fine. Now, as to whether or not there's going to be repercussions uh, to uh, his credibility in the future, all of that has yet to be seen. That being the case, what we do here is we're listening to what he's saying, and we're comparing what he's saying to God's Word. I don't care if Rob Bell wears hipster glasses. I don't care if his clothes are hipper than mine. They don't even make hip clothing for people my size anyway. I... (laughs) Let's just put it this way. I dress for radio. T-shirts and shorts when I can, and T-shirts and um, and Levi's when it's cooler. Yeah, and fuzzy bunny slippers whenever possible. The, the idea here is is this, is that I'm not really interested in doing comparative work on whether or not Rob Bell is a member of the CFR or part of some grander conspiracy to whatever. Who cares? We take him as he comes to us, and we take his ideas the way they come to us. Now, that being said, there's I think there's a story that needs to be pursued. 
And it's my understanding of the history of Mars Hill Bible Church and my understanding of Leadership Network and the Willow Creek Network that Willow Creek Church was instrumental in helping to launch Rob Bell uh, and Mars Hill Bible Church. I that's that's if I'm understanding my history correctly, that you know that the, there there be some responsibility. Now here, what's really funny is watching the Twitter Twitter verse. Is that what that's called? The Twitter verse, and uh, noticing that that there's a lot of people out there going, "Oh wow, he's really drifted." <laughs> And I'm going, really? You think he's really drifted? I mean, when I read Velvet Elvis, I knew there was a big problem. And in fact, I think if I my memory serves me right, it was either the first or the second edition, the second pro first or second program of Fighting for the Faith. Rob Bell was the topic. I mean, as long as Fighting for the Faith has been around as a podcast. Uh, Rob Bell has uh, been one of the featured false teachers, and and you know I think the first edition of Fighting for the Faith goes back to uh, the fall of 2007. Uh, that being the, you know, and keep that keep in mind. Well, that's four years ago. That's almost four years ago, and I was already writing about him and and chronicling his. Uh, I mean, my my sniffometer uh, you know went off when I read uh, Velvet Elvis and and saw the things that he was saying and doing. And what's really interesting is, is that uh, Willow Creek has been pretty much AWOL regarding um, Rob Bell as far as, com- you know, doing any discernment comparative work. And uh, it- it's interesting that now that all of this has blown up the way it has, there should be uh, some people who are going who should take a second look at some of the folks out there who've been doing discernment work on the Internet and realize, yeah, those guys have been warning us about Bell this entire time. I'm thankful that we've got a lot of new guys that have jumped into the battle and they finally realize the true nature of the threat that Rob Bell poses. I've been on to him for a while. So, you know, it's interesting just to note that historical fact. And uh, and, and somebody even noted a while ago that, you know, that uh, I, I seem to be one of Rob Bell's most outspoken critics because of the fact that I regularly feature his sermon reviews. If he puts out videos and things like that, I've done comparative work. I did a whole deconstruction of the gospel that he uh, presented in one of his videos that was uh, put out on the Internet back in 2009. The point being this is that I'm not surprised by what's happened with Rob Bell. Not at all. And if you have been paying attention and had been comparing what he's been saying in the name of God to the Word of God, then you would have realized a long time ago, too, that Rob Bell is a threat to the church and is not an ally of the church. So, yeah, and, and can, my question is, is that are they going to continue to endorse him at Willow Creek? When I, the last time I was at Willow Creek in, in the Willow Creek bookstore, it wasn't that they um, had a few, a couple of resources available for Rob Bell. They, I mean, they had two full bookcase displays full of everything that Rob Bell has ever published, uh, you know, either in print or in video form. Uh, they had every single, uh, you know, uh, teaching that he's ever given there at uh, at Willow Creek. And he was just recently, he was there uh, last summer, at, you know, teaching a few weeks there at Willow Creek. Now that he, you know, now that he's come out the way he's come out regarding the afterlife, will Willow Creek continue to stand by Rob Bell or will they distance 
themselves from him. And I think there's a story there. And what they do will be very interesting to watch and to see. So anyway, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you think we're going to be talking about Rob Bell, then that's what we're going to talk about. I got a couple of emails, uh, email responses that I want to read on the air regarding uh, yesterday's um, review of uh, Rob Bell's interview with uh, Lisa Miller from Newsweek. And uh, I got a couple of very good emails on that that I want to pass along to you. And um, and then we're going to listen to Rob Bell's interview on MSNBC. Now, I know that some of you have already seen this, but I'm going to play the audio for this uh, from this for the, the sake of the, the rest of you who are listening in my audience who would like to know the latest and haven't seen this um, particular interview. Uh, MSNBC has a gentleman last name of Bashir, and he interviewed Rob Bell yesterday and took Bell to task. I mean, it, and he, what's funny is is that he even was quoting from Kevin DeYoung's uh, review of Bell's book, Love Wins, and it was I kid I I I felt like what I really needed to hear. Uh, while I was, uh, you know, listening to and watching, you know, Bashir uh, just riddle him with question after question. These were not easy questions. I was waiting for somebody to, you know, to ring the, the, the bell, you know, in, you know, a boxing ring bell. Ding, ding, you know, that kind of thing. Whew. Worth passing along because Rob Bell, uh, Christine Pack noted that um, without... Uh, he, in order to look brilliant, he he can't be in a situation where he's being cross-examined with tough questions. Uh, that that whole mystique disappears as soon as um, as soon as you start asking him questions because he is far. He's even more evasive in answering questions than any politician that I have ever witnessed on uh, you know being interviewed. And I you know I used to think that Bill Clinton was slick in the way he would kind of dance around questions well rob bell you know he he's he tries harder than bill clinton and the funny thing is is that i don't think he pulls it off when he's asked tough upfront questions so uh we're gonna take a listen to that and then uh we've got the rest of kevin DeYoung's uh review of uh rob bell's book that we're go- i'm gonna be reading on the air and then our sermon review today uh sermon review let's see it comes to us uh, via uh, City Community Church here in the, the Indianapolis area, and the name of it is the story of two. You feed them, and uh, I've picked this particular sermon to review uh, because it's a complete adventure at missing the point. I mean, there's a Bible, there's a story from the scriptures read in there from one of the Gospels, um, but uh, yeah, talk about a complete utter confusion of law and gospel. This is uh, one of those. Sermons that's worth passing along to you because it airs so badly in how it handles the text that it it, it proves to be a good teaching lesson on how not to uh, do things. So lots of ground to cover today. Make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers if you're in a cooler weather right now, uh, that's perfectly okay. If not, yeah, I don't recommend them. Uh, it's only for if you're in a cooler weather. Otherwise, it'll detract from the overall listener experience. If you want to enjoy an adult beverage, don't have a problem with that. Keep in mind the biblical prohibition is regarding drunkenness, and so you don't want to take it to the point where you're abusing that wonderful gift that God has given us. And, of course, you, you, the standard rules apply, and all the warnings are in place too. So 
Uh, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Did I mention these were good emails? Yeah, I, I got two of them in particular that I want to share, but I, my email box has been flooding with uh, feedback. And my Fighting for the Faith website has gone nuts uh, regarding this whole Rob Bell thing. Okay, Justin writes, and I do not know where Justin is from. Justin did not let me know what town he's from. So Justin, from somewhere out there on the Internet, writes, he says, Chris, I have to tell you that I've been, I've been on high alert with Bell's theology for some time. Good for you. You should be. Uh, you should have been. Uh, he says, this book and interview has solidified everything that I was worried about. It's not so much about Bell as it is about the gospel being recreated for personal use. Yeah, I completely agree with you there, too. He says, I love your breakdown of the interview. There was no biblical truth behind his stance. It comes down to this. Bad premise equals bad conclusion. Yeah, that's exactly right. Bad premise equals bad conclusion. If, now, if you haven't heard the uh, White Horse Inn's uh, take on this, uh, the White Horse Inn today published a, a special edition of the White Horse Inn specifically dealing with Rob Bell's book. And uh, we broadcast it here on Pirate Christian Radio earlier today. And if you're listening live, this so this little note here, uh, you podcasters, I'm sorry, you're going to have to go to the White Horse <laughs> website in order to find this. But uh, those of you who are listening live right now to Fighting for the Faith uh, and pirate, on Pirate Christian Radio, immediately following uh, my program, we're going to re-air um, that special edition of the White Horse uh, Inn. And uh, during that, Dr. Rosenblatt made a very important observation. He talked about the fact that Rob Bell is dealing with what, in philosophical terms, they, dis they discuss as a, a synthetic a priori, that he basically came to the biblical text with uh, assuming particular things and then selected uh, those texts that fit his assumptions and took them out of context and exegeted them, if you could even call it that, um, in such a way as to support his already existing synthetic a priori prior to even approaching the Bible. And uh, so if you want to hear more about that, this, again, stay on, on Pirate Christian Radio, and immediately after this program you'll hear that uh, re-airing on uh, Pirate Christian Radio. But uh, anyway, but you're right, uh, you're, you're right, Justin, that what we're looking at here is bad premise equals bad conclusion. Uh, Justin continues. He says, I've read the book in its entirety, and I'm shocked at the arrogance that Bell possesses. You and me both. I, I've read it through twice now, and I still – that opening segment with all of those machine gun questions that he – oh, man. Bad, bad, bad. Anyway, he says, Oprah could could have written this same book about Jesus. It's sad. The book should have been called Love Wins, the Gospel According to Rob Bell. I'm constantly reminded of 2 Peter 2, he says, and then he quoted it here for me to read for you. Here's what it says. Uh, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. 
Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, as well as seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the by the depraved conduct of lawlessness, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If it, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who corrupt the uh, who ha- who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority bold and arrogant. They are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such things when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish." They will be paid back with harm for the harm that they have done. The idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and are an accursed brood. They have, been, they have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, the son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness, but was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who, be, who spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it, and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning." It would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow is washed and returns to her wallowing in the mud. Justin, that's a perfectly appropriate passage for you to be uh, citing here. Perfectly appropriate. And I agree. Justin continues, he says, I'm fearful for the church and all of the people who will be deceived by this very seductive look at Christ. Exactly. And if you watch the Twitterverse, the blogosphere, and uh, all the places where discussion is taking place regarding this book, it's clear that there are a truckload of people who call themselves evangelicals who are coming to the defense of Rob Bell and believe that what he is saying is a fresh and acceptable way of understanding the afterlife that's perfectly within the realm of orthodoxy. In the, um, I talk about heresy hurricanes. This is more like a heresy five-alarm fire. Uh, this is one where uh, the church is on fire, and everybody at this point 
needs to grab a bucket and come and help put this one out. Justin continues, he says, Thank you for your continuing effort to keep things in perspective and for fighting for the truth of God's Word. Disheartened deeply by Rob's Bell abuse of his voice in the Christian culture, being a universalist is one thing. Flying it under the Christian banner, that's a completely different story. I usually don't get too fired up, but this is too much for me to take in without becoming outraged and saddened. Justin, take that energy and apply it towards helping your neighbor. Love and serve them enough to speak the truth and to take the time to walk them through what the Bible really teaches on this matter and show them how Rob Bell has twisted God's word and is doing so at the cost of people going to hell. All right, this next email comes from a gal who has requested that I not mention her name. So I know her name. I cannot mention it. But she writes, he says, Yesterday I listened to the question-answer segment with Rob Bell. I was impressed. I thought at I thought at how many people asked him good questions that he could or not or did not answer. Yeah, you know what's really funny is is that my mother-in-law was listening to the program last night and um what she said was every time somebody would ask Bell a tough question, he would say, "Great question," and then would proceed to not answer it. So Coming back to the emailer, uh, she writes, she says, At the end, he seemed to justify his new Christianity with the story about the cutting woman. I noticed when he told the story that I could hear compassion in his voice, like he truly believes he needs to come up with a new God that will help people more. She had never known a man that didn't beat her. I can understand that because the men in my life, including my own father, have sexually abused me. Satan comes at abused people strongly. I, too, wished for a more helping God to save me from the immediate circumstances. Satan tried to tell me God didn't exist, and I truly did not understand God's silence. But getting rid of God's holiness and justice is not the answer. It has taken me many years to hear God's truth given to me by my pastors in God's word. He is merciful. He is love even in regard to there being a true hell, not just hell on earth. If he weren't merciful, he would have imploded this planet again long ago. It's not just sins that were done to me, but my own sins that have to be reckoned with. When I fear God's holiness and justice, I remember that Jesus was tempted by Satan. He came through perfectly because I don't. He tells me that I'm forgiven because he's took God's justice for me on the cross. There is a hell, but no one has to go there. I, for one, am glad that Hitler is there. By what virtue could he live in heaven for eternity? And I, if I only had one tiny sin to deal with, would have to go to hell because of God's holiness. Does Rob Bell believe in heaven? Maybe he thinks when we die, that's it. Rob Bell is a liar. He is creative, and he's flashy, and he knows it. He's a Pied Piper leading many people down the wrong road, even if he's doing it. He, uh, even if he is doing it, he thinks, from compassion for human suffering. Does he think he is more loving than God regarding this? So he has to change who God is? He's not alone. The whole coalition of emergence is with him in this movement. Failed as it will be, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, Jesus said. He's, Rob Bell is no, is no theologian. Then he should get down off that stage and quit leading people to hell. I live very near Mars Hill. 
I went there one night about two or three years ago. I wanted to hear him because of all the fuss about him. I was too early for church, and there were no cars in the parking lot. I waited for a long time, and nothing was happening, so I went home. Later, I tried to look up Mars Hill on the computer, got rerouted to Mars Hill, Seattle, and I am so thankful he did. I am an LCMS and love it, but love Mark Driscoll for his preaching, too. He has really helped keep me on the right track with his biblical teaching. And, you know, i I, I got to say this to the emailer. There's a reason why I don't take Driscoll to task. I know that there's many things that he's done methodologically, and his sins are obvious to all. But one of the reasons I don't take Driscoll to task is because when I listen to Driscoll, I hear him preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins. For every one of the shortcomings that he has, and there are plenty that you could talk about, the one thing i got to say about Mark Driscoll, he preaches Christ and him crucified, and he preaches the word. I don't understand his church. I don't I don't even agree with his methodologies. There's certain things that he's endorsed that I can't endorse. But the one thing I could say about Driscoll, every single time I've heard that man speak, I've heard him preach Christ. So I agree with the emailer here. She continues. She says, There's nothing more comforting than God's holiness and justice, because in the end there will be true peace and true love. All evil will be done away with when the final separation between heaven and hell will be accomplished. There is nothing good or bad that happens on this earth that matters in light of that. In the meantime, forgiveness is free and covers it all because God loves us so much he fixed the problem by sacrificing his own son. Jesus went to hell. How can Rob Bell say that it doesn't exist? You know, that's a great point. Because we confess in the creeds that he descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. The church from the beginning has not only confessed that hell exists, but that Jesus went there. Think about it. All right, we're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because all the letters of the Bible are red letters, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build-A-God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. 
I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful all at the same time. Okay, then. Well, what is your God's take on sin? He only condemns it. Pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. C could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. Yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. Yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, rather than rescuing people from hell, Rabel is actually sending them to hell. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons one says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 460. 
All right, now for the uh, for the sake of the people who have not seen this, Martin Bashir of uh, MSNBC yesterday interviewed Rob Bell, and the <laughs> he took the gloves off and <laughs> just went boosh boosh boosh. And poor Rob Bell, he wasn't ready for this. It, the look on his face was, oh no, here's a guy who knows how to answer questions. And uh, Rob Bell's response to these tough questions is absolutely, uh, well, it's it's subterfuge, um, it's blather, um, it's obfuscation, it's everything you could possibly think of. But uh, if you haven't heard it, it's worth passing it along. So without any further ado, here's... Martin Bashir from yesterday on MSNBC in his interview with Rob Bell. Here we go. One megachurch pastor has ignited a theological firestorm by suggesting that our response to the Christian message in this life will not necessarily determine our eternal destiny. In his book, Love Wins, Heaven, Hell, and the Fate of Every Person Who Ever Lived, Rob Bell says that ultimately all people will be saved, when those, even those who've rejected the claims of Christianity. He argues people will eventually be persuaded by God's love post-mortem in the life to come. Even Hitler. And Pastor Rob Bell joins us now. Good afternoon, sir. Before we come to talk about the book, just help us with this tragedy in Japan. Which of these is true? Either God is all-powerful, but he doesn't care about the people of Japan and therefore they're suffering, or he does care about the people of Japan, but he's not all-powerful. Which one is it? Okay, now I'm going to pause there for a second. Interesting leading question, and the reason why is because this is the classic philosophical question that has to do with the problem of good and evil, uh, otherwise known as the theodicy. And there is a way to work, uh, to, you know, to answer this question that I think is, uh, is kind of along the lines of the way C.S. Lewis dealt with it. And the, the, Lewis gets the question of where do you get your idea of good from in the first place? I mean, yeah, you know, you're, you, what do you mean by good? You know, and and so there's a way to argue this in such a way, but these this is what we call the classic being thrown on the classic horns of a dilemma, and it's not necessarily um, it, it's not a good dilemma. There may be a bifurcation fallacy going on here, but Bashir thinks this is a good leading question. So let's see where Rob Bell now goes with this, because I think at this point the look on his face is whoa. I begin with the belief that God, when we shed a tear, God sheds a tear. So, so I, I begin with a divine being who is profoundly empathetic, compassionate, and stands in solidarity with us. Secondly, the dominant story of the scriptures is about restoration, it's about renewal, it's about rebirth, it's about a God who insists in the midst of this chaos, the last word hasn't been spoken. And so people of faith have clung to this promise and this hope that God will essentially fix this place. And it's a beautiful hope, and I think we ought to keep it front and center, especially right now. So which of those is true? He's all-powerful and he cares, or he cares and is not all-powerful? I think that this is a paradox. Did you notice that he's basically saying, you didn't answer my question? At the heart of the divine, and some paradoxes are best left exactly as they are. Okay. This book you've written has been stirring some controversy because the implication is, as you put it, God's love will eventually melt hearts. That's what you say in the book. So are you a universalist who believes that everyone can go to heaven regardless of how they respond to Christ on earth? Um, 
In, in regards to the question, are you a universalist, I would say first and foremost, no. And that is a perspective within the Christian stream. There has Now he's redefining the term universalist. Been within the Christian tradition, a number of people who have said, given enough time, God will win everybody over. Um, one of the things in the book I'm very clear on and, and want people to see is that this tradition has all of these different opinions. Everybody will be won over. Some will continue to resist God's love. And that Christians have disagreed about this speculation. I, I, I get that. And so, so is it irrelevant and is it immaterial about how one responds to Christ in this life in terms of determining one's eternal destiny? Fantastic question because that's really the implications of it. Like I said, if Rob Bell's right, you, oh, if you're having a hard time reining your sin in and you're just thinking it's putting a cramp on your style, don't worry. Just go sin like it's 1999 and it won't matter. You'll God will eventually melt your heart and you'll be in anyway. Is that immaterial? I think it's extraordinarily important. I think it's extraordinarily important. In your important. book, you said that God wins regardless in the end. Um, love wins for me is a way of understanding that God is love and love demands freedom. You are asking for it both ways. That doesn't make sense. I'm asking you. Right, exactly. He's he wants he wants his cake and he wants to eat it too. It's wow. Is it irrelevant as to how you respond to Christ in your life now to determine your eternal destiny? Is that irrelevant? Is it immaterial? It is terribly relevant and terribly important. Now, how exactly that works out and how exactly it works out in the future, we are now when you die firmly in the realm of speculation. And my experience has been that a lot of Christians have built whole dogmas. Got to stop there. No, Rob, we're not. When it comes to what happens to you after you die, after you die, we are not in the realm of speculation. The reason why I say that is because God has actually revealed certain things regarding what happens to people in His Word. Yeah, I go back to what I say constantly. I have never met God. I have no idea what he looks like. I couldn't tell you what colors are in his glory. I, I couldn't tell you nothing about him. Nothing except for what he's revealed about himself in his word. That I can trust. And the funny thing is, is that not only has God revealed information about himself in his word, God has also revealed information about the fates of the twin fates of humanity in his word, and specifically revealed that through the teachings of Jesus Christ, who was none other than God in human flesh. So no, we're not completely in the realm of speculation here. Unless, of course, you want to say that Jesus was speculating about what would happen to people after they die. But I don't think that that's a case that's winnable, do you? about what happens when you die, and we have to be very careful that we don't build whole doctrines and dogmas on what is speculation. Jesus, I, I'm, I'm not talking about okay. what happens when you die. I'm asking you how you respond here and now. And the question I'm asking you, and what yes. you seem to be saying in this book, yep. is that God will love, will melt everyone's heart eventually, some even post-mortem in death. So you're the one making the speculation about the afterlife. What I'm asking is... <laughs> Rob Bell just took. I mean, he he's kind. Of, yeah, I don't know if you noticed this about Bell. He has kind of a large Adam's apple, but I mean, I it just looked like he took did one of those gulp. <laughs> 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 
Bashir is not letting him maneuver at all. And boy, does he not look good. <laughs> oh, man, this is wild. Okay, here we go again. Life. What I'm asking is, is it irrelevant and immaterial about how you respond to Christ now to determine your eternal destiny? Is that relevant or irrelevant? Does it have a bearing or does it have no bearing? I, has, I think it has tremendous bearing. It also at the same time raises all sorts of questions, and that is why the discussion is so lively and vibrant. Namely, what about people who haven't heard? Here comes the uh, <clears throat> blather at this point. That, somebody from the uh, UK emailed me after the program last night and said, yeah, we have a word for all of that stuff that Rob Bell gave in his answers during the interview last night. We call it blather. So I, I'm adopting the term blather for this week. <laughs> I mean, notice he doesn't answer the question and then talks about how there's lots of different answers to the question. And that's what the best part about it is, is that there's all this conversation. He's not answering the questions about Jesus. What about uh, the woman I talked to a couple weeks ago who was abused by her pastor? And that has nothing to do with anything. You're not answering the question, sir. And so for her, Jesus is tied up in all sorts of things. And I assume that God's grace gives people space to work those sort of issues one, out. One critique of your book says this, there are dozens of problems with Love Wins. The history is inaccurate. The use of scripture, indefensible. That's true, isn't it? No, it's not true. So why do you... That's Kevin DeYoung. <laughs> Bashir, that's true, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know if Bashir's a Christian, but who man, <laughs> this is a flamethrower interview. Choose, for example, to accept and promote the works of the early writer Origen, and not, for example, Arius, who took a view of Jesus's deity as, as in being not de not God. Why do you select one and not select the other? Because first and foremost, I'm a pastor. And so I deal with real people in a real world asking and wrestling with these issues of faith. And what I so he, he, Bell looks a little bit upset at this point. He's lost his cool. I, I think those are beads of sweat on his forehead. I've discovered over and over again is there are people who have questions and hunches and have sort of, I'm really struggling with this. And when you can simply give them the gift of, by the way, within the Christian tradition, there are scholars and theologians and there are other people who have had the same questions. But they have had the, the same But you, you've just indicated, though, one of the problems. Who cares? The question that really matters is who is correct? Who is right? Just because you have some scholar or ancient church father who said something you think agrees with your position doesn't mean hokum. The question is who's right? And the only way we're going to be able to answer that is let's go back to the text. Let's look at the nouns. Let's look at the verbs. Let's, let's look at the adjective adverbs and all the words that are spoken by Jesus and God regarding this topic. With this book, which is, in a sense, you're creating a Christian message that's warm, kind, and popular for contemporary culture, but it's frankly, according to this critic, unbiblical and historically unreliable. That's true, isn't it? No. What you've done true. is you're amending the gospel, the Christian message, so that it's palatable to contemporary people who find, for example, the idea of hell and heaven very difficult to stomach. So 
Booyah. Wow. Here comes Rob Bell. He's made a Christian <laughs> gospel for you, and it's perfectly palatable. It's much easier to swallow. That's what you've done, haven't you? No, I haven't. And there's actually an entire chapter in the book on hell. And there's an... I mean, throughout the book, over and over again, our choices matter. The decisions we make about whether we extend love to others or not, the ways in which we resist or we open ourselves to God's love, these are incredibly important. How much, how much is this book you working out your own childhood experience of being brought up in a fairly cramped evangelical family and really finding that difficult as you became an adult? How much is this actually that? Oh, I would totally own up to that in a heartbeat. I think we are all on a journey and we're all, we all were handed things. You were handed things. I were handed things. This is the way the world works. This is what matters. This is what doesn't. Here's who these people are. Here's who these people are. Here's who's in. Here's who's out. We've all been handed these things and we spend our lives sort of pushing back and questioning and probing. I think that's what makes it so engaging. It's part of the joy of life. So we should, we should just be all happy about the engagement and the, the fun conversation that we can all have about hell, thanks to Rob Bell. What a service he's done to humanity. Pastor Rob Bell, thank you very much for joining us. And your book is called Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. Thank you. So that was, <laughs> that was Rob Bell in the firing line. And the look on his face was like, who am I glad that's over? And uh, that, that, <laughs> talk about obfuscation, talk about not answering the questions, talk about trying to redirect and find a way to get off the hook that he had been put on by uh, Martin Bashir there. Props to Martin Bashir. I don't know if he's a Christian, but he has certainly done a service to the body of Christ by asking Rob Bell those tough questions. All right, well, let's move along here. What we're going to, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to finish the balance of Kevin DeYoung's a uh, very lengthy and hefty review of Rob Bell's book because I, you know, this is a service that I provide for you by giving you long form discernment, good stuff that you can uh, uh, listen to, apply, and you know, rather than giving you sound bites, I like to cover stuff in depth. And so, because Kevin DeYoung's review of Rob Bell's book comes to twenty pages, twenty pages. Um, I want to continue reading. Now, when we finished up, uh, we were finishing up the, uh, like, he gave 10 different uh, things that were wrong with Rob Bell's exege- exegetical skills, if you would, or lack thereof. And so uh, Kevin DeYoung listed 10 exegetical problems, and that was the last thing that we finished up with. And now we're going to deal with uh, section four of his critique, and it's entitled Eschatological Problems. You know, there's all kinds of problems in this. There's Christological, there's gospel problems, there's eschatological problems, but we'll talk about all of that as we continue with Kevin DeYoung's uh, critique. DeYoung writes, he says, Bell's eschatology is muddled. He, yeah, mm-hmm. I think the uh, interviews that we that we reviewed yesterday and today kind of prove that. On the one hand, he goes to great length to argue that eternal life is not really forever life, just abundant life or... Life belonging to the next age. See pages 57 and 92 through 93. He maintains that the images of hell refer to the pain we create for ourselves on earth and the impending disaster on Jerusalem in 70 AD. See page 81. Bell sounds like an outright preterist at times, having no place for end times judgment or an unending existence after death. But on the other hand, he seems to leave all of these arguments behind later, when he talks about an eternal post-mortem existence, he does believe in heaven after you die, and he believes in and he believes in hell. 
But in a strange bit of logical, uh, but a strange bit of logic arising out of the parable of the prodigal son, Bell maintains that heaven and hell exist side by side. It's it's not always clear what Bell thinks, but it seems he believes everyone goes to the same realm when they die. But for some people, it's heaven, and for others, it's hell. See page one seventy. If you don't accept God's story about the world and resist his love, heaven will be hell for you, a hell you create for yourself. We are supposed to see this in Luke 15, where both brothers are invited to the same feast, but but one can't enjoy it. Heaven and hell at the same party. See page 176. To call this a little stretch is like calling pro wrestling a little fake. Great line, Kevin. Jesus told all three lost parables to explain why he was eating with sinners, see Luke chapter 15, not to posit a thoroughly un-Jewish notion that the afterlife is whatever you make of it. If the parable of the prodigal son teaches Bell's theology of heaven and hell at the same time, then the Bible can teach anything Bell wants it to. Exactly. In a similar vein, that's why I think Origen and Bell would probably get along, in a similar vein, Bell seems unaware that theologians of various traditions have talked about the two sides of God's will or two lenses through which God views the world. To be sure, there is mystery here, but it's common to distinguish between God's will of decree, whereby everything that he wills comes to pass, see Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, and his will of desire which can be rejected, see Matthew 7 verse 21. And yet one of Bell's main planks in support of universal reconciliation is that if God wants all people to be saved, then all people must eventually be saved. How great is God, Bell asks, great enough to achieve what God sets out to do, or or, or kind of great, great most of the time, but in this, the fate of billions of people, not totally great, sort of great, a, a little great. That's a direct quote. See pages 97 through 99. The strong insinuation is that God, that a God who does not save everyone is not totally great. All of this is built on the statement that God wants everyone to be saved. There's no exegetical work on the meaning of all people and no discussion on the dual nature of God's will. In Bell's mind, if all people do not end up reconciled to God and it's tantamount to God saying, well, I tried, I gave it my best shot and Sometimes you just have to be okay with failure. See page 103. Bell has taken one statement from 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved, avoids any contextual work on, on the passage. Example, all probably means all kinds of people and refuses to bring any other relevant passages to bear on this one. For example, Romans 9.22, uh, what if God's desiring to show his wrath and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, is what that verse says. The the result is a simplistic formula. God wants all people to be saved. God gets what he wants. Therefore, all people will eventually be saved. This is a case of poor theologizing beholden to mistaken logic. If it is the will of God that all Christians abstain from sexual immorality, see 1 Thessalonians 4.3, does that mean that God's greatness is diminished by our impurity? Hmm? In the blog buzz leading up to the release of Love Wins, there was a lot of discussion about whether Bell is or is not a Christian universalist. After reading the book, I see no reason why the label does not fit. Now, it's true, Bell believes in hell, but he does not believe that God pours out his wrath on anyone forever. 
I'm not sure he thinks God actively pours out wrath on anyone at all. Hell is the sad and suffering of this life. See page 71. Hell is God giving us what we want. See page 72. Post-mortem hell is what we create for ourselves when we refuse to believe God's story. When we resist his love. See pages 170 through 71, 72, and 177. There is hell now and hell later. There's all kinds of hell because there's all kinds of ways to reject the good and the true and the beautiful and the human now in this life. And so we can only assume uh, we can do the same in the next. Yeah, we talked about that on yesterday's program, didn't we? That uh, All that assuming going on. So why do I say Bell is a universalist if he believes in hell? Because he does not believe hell lasts forever. It's a temporary period of pruning, an intense experience of correction. See page 91. Bell's hell is like purgatory, except his period of pruning is for anyone, not just for Christians who die in a state of grace, as Catholicism teaches. For Bell, this life is about getting ourselves fitted for the good life to come. Some of us die ready to experience God's love. Others need more time to sort things out. Luckily, in Bell's scheme, there is always more time. No one can resist God's pursuit uh, forever because God's love will eventually melt even the hardest hearts says Bell, see page 108. Bell does not believe every road leads to God. He is not a moral relativist. You can get your life and theology wrong. Uh, Heaven is a kind of starting over, a time to relearn what it means to be human. For some, this process may take a while, and during the process, their heaven may feel more like hell. But even those who get everything wrong in this life, will eventually get it right over time in the next life. In Bell's theology, ultimately everyone will be saved. If he's right, most of the church, most of church history has been wrong. And if he's wrong, a staggering number of people are hearing peace, peace, where there is no peace. What's wrong with this theology is, of course, what's wrong with the whole book. Bell assumes all sorts of things that can't be shown from the scripture. For example... Bell figures God won't say sorry too late to those in hell who are humble and broken for their sins. But where does the Bible teach the damned are truly humble or penitent? For that matter, where does the Bible talk about growing and maturing in the afterlife or getting a second chance after death? Why does the Bible make such a big deal about repenting today? See Hebrews 3. 13 about being found blameless on the day of Christ 2 Peter 3:14 about not neglecting such a great salvation Hebrews 2:3 2, if we, if we have all sorts of time to figure things out in the next life why warn about not inheriting the kingdom 1 Corinthians 6 9 through 10 and what about and and about what a fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of an angry god hebrews 10:31 or about the vengeance of our coming king 2 Thessalonians 1:5 through 12 if hell is just what we make of heaven bell does nothing to answer these questions or even ask them in the first place you know kevin i would even add to that the parable of the 10 virgins you know the the foolish ones that had no oil yeah they were Kept in outer darkness. Anyways, section five, Christological problems. Most readers of Love Wins will want to talk about Bell's universalism, but just as troubling is his Christology. Bell has a Joseph Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces view of Jesus. Jesus is hidden in various cultures and in every aspect of creation. 
Some people find him, and some don't. Some call him Jesus. Some have too much baggage with Christianity, so they call him by a different name. Page 159. Bell finds support for this Christological hide-and-seek in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is where Paul calls to mind the Exodus narrative and asserts that the rock, the one that gushed water, was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.4. From this, Bell concludes, quote, There are rocks everywhere. Page 139, if Paul saw Christ in the rock, then who knows Who knows where else we might find him? Page 144, Jesus cannot be confined to any one religion, Bell argues. He transcends our labels in cages, especially the one called Christianity. See page 150, Christ is present in all cultures and can be found everywhere. Sometimes missionaries travel around the world only to find that the Christ they preach was already present by a different name. Page 152. This does not mean Christ is everywhere you want him to be. Some Jesuses would be rejected, Bell says, like the ones that are anti-science or anti-gay and use bullhorns on the street. See page 8. But wherever we find grace, peace, love, acceptance, healing, forgiveness, we've found the creative life force that we call Jesus, see page 156 and 159. Elsewhere, after describing a false Jesus who waves the flag and promotes whatever values they've decided their nation needs to return to, Bell offers the promising alternative, quote, The very life source of the universe who walked among us and continues to sustain everything with his love and power and grace and energy, page 156. These Eucharist rituals are true for us because they're true for everybody. They unite us because they unite everybody. These are signs and glimpses and tastes of what is true for all people in all places at all times. We simply name the mystery present in all the world, the gospel already announced to every creature under heaven, page 157. This is classic liberalism, pure and simple, a souped-up version of Schleiermacher's feeling of absolute dependence. This is all eminence and no transcendence. This is not the objective gospel message of Christ's work in history that we must announce. This is an existential message announcing a, a rival version of the good news, the announcement that you already know Christ and you can feel him in your heart if you pay attention. To suggest the Lord's Supper unites all people to, makes a mockery of the sacrament and the Christ uniquely present in the bread and the cup. The table is a feast for those who trust in Christ, for those who can discern his body, a family meal for those who together with the, uh, who together will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It brings us together under the sign of the cross. The sheep, not of this pen, are not adherents of other religions who belong to Christ without knowing it, page 152, but Gentiles who can now fellowship with Jesus with Jews through the blood of Christ. See Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. And let's not forget all of this rests on an illegitimate reading of 1 Corinthians 10. First, the fact that Paul found a type of Christ in the Old Testament does not give us warrant to find whatever types we like in the world. Second, Paul did not mention the rock willy-nilly because it seemed beautiful to him. The gushing rock was a picture of God's provision and salvation for his people in the Old Testament, just like Christ is for the church in the New Testament. Third, the rest of 1 Corinthians 10 militantly opposes everything Bell wants to get out of the chapter. The reason Paul brought up the rock in the first place 
was an example that we might not desire evil as they did. See 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Paul wants the Corinthians to avoid being destroyed by the destroyer. See 1 Corinthians 10, verse 10. And to take heed lest they fall. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. There's no thought that the Corinthians should find Christ in 10,000 places. The whole chapter is a warning against idolatry to flee from it, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, and not to embrace it in the name of mystery. Gospel Problems, section 6. This review is too too long already, DeYoung writes. Yeah, but it's really good, Kevin. But I really must say something about the two most grievous errors in the book, Bell's view of the cross and his view of God. According to Bell, salvation is realizing you're already saved. We are all forgiven. We are all loved equally and fully by God who has made peace with everyone. That work is done. Now we are invited to believe that story and to live in it. Pages 172 and 173. Bell is not saying what you think he might be saying. He's not suggesting faith is the instrumental cause used by the Spirit to join us to Christ so that we can share in all of his benefits, that would be evangelical theology. Bell is saying God has already forgiven us whether we ask for it or not, whether we repent or believe or not, whether we are born again or not. Forgiveness is unilateral. God isn't waiting for us to get together, to clean up, shape up, get up. God has already done it, page 189. This means the Father's love... Uh, the, the Father's love just is. It cannot be earned. It cannot be taken away. God's love is simply yours, page 188. Heaven and hell, however, Bell conceives them, are both full of forgiven people. So what does Bell believe about the atonement? He starts with the, very, uh, with the familiar refrain that there are many images for what the death of Jesus accomplished, and none of them should be prized more than the other. Though he claims Christus Victor was the dominant understanding for the first thousand years of church history, the point is not to argue about the images. The point then is to know it is now is Jesus, the divine in the flesh and blood. He's where the life is, page 129. Now, you may wonder where the sacrificial system is in all of this. After all, as a friend reminded me years ago, Bell was best known for being the pastor who started his church by preaching from Leviticus. I'm not sure what Bell taught back then, but now it appears his understanding of sacrifice is almost entirely negative. Sacrifice in the ancient world, and he fails to distinguish between Israel and other nations, meant offering something, show that you're serious, make amends, find favor, and then hope that that was enough to get what you needed, page 124. Sacrifice is a kind of plea bargain, not a substitution. Consequently, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was a generic do-away-with-all-of-sacrifices. It means no more wondering if the gods were pleased with you and are ready to strike you down, 125. Notice Bell does not say that Jesus' death appeased the anger of God or gods, only that his sacrifice shows us we don't have to wonder anymore if the gods are angry. Sacrifice, whether in the Old Testament or on the cross, is not about loving divine substitution, but the divine manifestation of love already present in the world, a love whose only obstacle is our ignorance of it and unwillingness to receive it. For all the talk of social justice, there is apparently no need for God to receive his justice. Bell categorically rejects any notion of penal substitution. It simply does not work in his system or with his view of God. Quote, Let's be very clear then, Bell states, quote, 
We do not need to be rescued from God. God is the one who rescues us from death, sin, and destruction. God is the rescuer, page 182. I see no place in Bell's theology for Christ, the curse-bearer, Galatians 3.13, or Christ wounded for our transgressions and crushed by God for our iniquities, see Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 10. No place for the Son of Man who gave his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10.45. No place for the Savior who was made sin for us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. No place for the sorrowful, suffering servant who drank the bitter cup of God's wrath for our sake. Mark 14, verse 36. In Bell's theology, God is love, a love that never burns hot with anger, a love that cannot distinguish or discriminate. Jesus' story, Bell says, is first and foremost foremost about the love of God for every single one of us. It's a stunning, beautiful, expansive love, and it is for everybody everywhere, says Bell, page one. Therefore, he reasons we cannot claim him to be ours any more than he's anybody else's, page 152. This is tragic. It's as if Bell wants every earthly father to love every child in the world the exact same way. If you rob a father of his unique, specific, not-for-everyone love, you rob the children of their greatest treasure. It reminds me of the t-shirt, Jesus loves you, then again, he loves everybody. There's no good news in announcing that God loves everyone in the same way just because he wants to. The good news is that is that in love, God sent his son to live for our lives and die for our deaths, suffering the God-forsakenness we deserve so that we might call God our God, and we who trust in Christ might be his children. The sad irony is that while Bell would very much like to know the love of God, he has taken away the very thing in which God's love is chiefly known. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Next section, a different God. At the very heart of this controversy, and one of the reasons the blogosphere exploded over this book, is that we really don't have two is we is that we really do have, sorry, do have two different gods. The stakes are that high. If Bell is right, then historic orthodoxy is toxic and terrible. But if the traditional view of heaven and hell are right, Bell is blaspheming. I do not use the word lightly, just like Bell probably chose toxic quite deliberately. Both sides cannot be right. As much as some voices in evangelicalism will suggest that we should all get along and learn from each other each other, and listen for the spirits speaking in our midst, the fact is we have two irreconcilable views of God. Here's how Bell understands the traditional view of God. Quote, Millions have been taught that if they don't believe, if they don't accept in the right way, according to the person telling them the gospel, and they were hit by a car and died later that same day, God would have no choice but to punish them forever in conscious torment in hell. God would, in essence, become fundamentally a different being to them in that moment of death, a different being to them forever. A loving Heavenly Father who would go to extraordinary lengths to have a relationship with them would, in the blink of an eye, become a cruel, mean, vicious tormentor who would ensure that they would have no escape from an endless future of agony. If there was an earthly father who was like that, we would call that the authorities. If there was an actual human dad who was that volatile, we would contact Child Protective Services immediately. 
if God can switch gears like that, switch entire modes of being that quickly, that that quickly, that raises a thousand questions about whether a being like this could ever be trusted, let alone be good. Loving one moment, vicious the next, kind and compassionate, only to become cruel and relentless in the blink of an eye. Does God become somebody totally different the moment you die? That kind of God is simply devastating, psychologically crushing. We can't bear it. No one can. That God is a terrifying and traumatizing and unbearable God. Page 173-175. Of course, this is a horrible caricature that makes God seem capricious and and vindictive. No one I know, no one I know thinks God is loving one minute and cruel the next. But God is always holy, and holy love is not the same as unconditional affirmation. Holy love is more terrifying than even Bell thinks and more unbelievably merciful and free than Bell imagines. Bell's God is a small God, so bound by notions of radical free will that I wonder how Bell can be so confident God's love will melt the hardest heart. If God's grace is always essentially fundamentally resistible, how do we know some sinners won't suffer in their own hell for a million years? Bell's God may be all love, but it is a love rooted in our modern Western sensibilities more than a careful biblical reflection. It is a love that threatens to swallow up God's glory and holiness. But you may reply, the Bible says God is love. See 1 John 4, 16. True. But if you want to weigh divine attributes by sentence construction, you have to mention God is spirit, John 4, 24. God is light, 1 John 1, 5. And God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29. The verb is does not establish a priority of attributes. If anything, one might mention that the only three uh, thrice-repeated attribute of God is holy, holy, holy. And yet, this is the one thing Bell's God is not. Having preached through the Leviticus, he should remember that holiness is the overarching theme. The sacrifices are a pleasing aroma to God's nostrils because they satisfy his justice, making way for a holy God to dwell in the midst of an unholy people. That Christ's sacrifice is the same pleasing aroma to God, see Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, undercuts Bell's insistence that God did not need to rescue us from God. It would be unfair to say Bell doesn't believe in sin. He clearly does, but his viceless are telling war, rape, greed, injustice, violence, pride, division, exploitation, disgrace. In other places, he says that in heaven God will say no to oil spills, no to sexual assault on women, political leaders, Silencing, uh, silencing by oppression, and people being stepped on by greedy institutions and corporations. See pages 37 and 38. These are real problems, and throughout the book, Bell mentions many real heinous sins, but all of these sins are obvious to most everyone in our culture, especially progressives. What miss, what's missing is not only a full-orbed view of sins, but a deeper understanding of sin itself. In Bell's telling of the story, there is no sense of the vertical dimension of our evil. Yes, Bell admits several times that we can resist or reject God's love, but there's never any discussion of the way we've offended God, no suggestion that ultimately all of our failings are a failure to worship God as we should. God is not simply uh, God is not simply disappointed with our choices or angry for the way we judge others. He's angry at the way we judge Him. 
He cannot stand to look upon our uncleanness. His nostrils flare at iniquity. He hates our ingratitude, our impurity, our God complexes, our self-centeredness, our disobedience, our despising of his holy law. Only when we see God's eye covering holiness will we grasp the magnitude of our traitorous rebellion, and only then will we marvel at the incomprehensible love that purchased our deliverance on the cross. Bell begins the book by noting how fed up he is with the traditional story about Jesus. He insists on telling a different story, and he does. His story is, his story, as I've noted before, is, quote, first and foremost, about the love of God for every single one of us. It's a stunning, beautiful, expansive love that is for everybody everywhere. Preface page 7. On the right lips, this might possibly be a fine statement, but from Bell, it signals a deviation from the Bible's plot line. God, look at God's people in the garden, then kicked out of the garden. God's people in the promised land, then booted out of the promised land. God's people in the New Jerusalem, then the wicked and unbelieving locked outside the New Jerusalem. Trace this story from tabernacle to temple through the incarnation and Pentecost and the coming down of the new heaven and the new earth, and you will see that the Bible story is about how a holy God can possibly dwell among an unholy people. The good news of this story is not that God loves everybody everywhere, and you just need to find Christ in the rocks all around you. The good news is that God over and over makes a way for his unholy people to dwell in his holy presence and that all of these ways were pointing to one way, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. At bottom, Bell's vision of heaven and hell doesn't work because his vision of God is false. I cannot imagine the angels singing, Holy, 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 or Isaiah crying out, Woe is me, at the feet of Bell's God. I see no place for divine wrath or divine justice in Bell's theology. All our punishment in this life and the next is man-made. We get what we want, and it makes our lives miserable now and for a while in heaven. There is some truth to this. The pain of hell is our fault, but it's also God's doing. Hell is not what we make for ourselves or gladly choose. It's what a holy God justly gives to those who exchange the truth of God for a lie. The bowls of wrath and revelation are poured out by God. They are not swum in by sinners. The ten plagues were sent by God. They were not the product of some Egyptian spell gone wrong. God's wrath burns against the impenitent and unbelieving. They do not walk into the fire by themselves. Bell's God is wholly passive towards sin. He hates some of it and says no to it in the next life, but he does not actively judge it. There's no way to make sense of Nadab or Abihu or Perez or Uzzah or Gehazi or Achan's or Korah's rebellion or the flood or the exodus or the Babylonian captivity or the preaching of John the Baptist or the visions of Revelation or the admonitions of Paul or the warnings of Hebrews or Calvary's cross apart from a God who hates sin, judges sin, and pours out his wrath. Sometimes now, always later, on the accursed things, the people's of of this world. God is God, and there is no hope for non-gods who want to be gods, except through the God-man who became a curse for us. That's bad news for some, and unfathom, unfathomably good news for all those born again by the sovereign Spirit of God unto faith in Christ and eternal life. A concluding pastoral postscript. The tendency in theological controversy is to boil everything down to a conflict of personalities. 
This is the way the world understands our disagreement. This is how the world sells controversy. It's always politician versus politician or pastor versus pastor. But sometimes the disagreement is less about the men or women involved and more about the truth. This is one of those instances. I have not spent hours and hours on this review because I'm about to get another uh, I I am out to get another pastor. I may be a sinner, but with four young children and a very full church schedule, I have no time for personal vendettas. No, this is not about a single author or a single church. This is about the truth, about how the righteous how the rightness or wrongness of our theology can do tremendous help or tremendous harm to the people of God. This is about real people in East Lansing where I serve and real people an hour down the road in Grand Rapids where I grew up. This is about real people who have learned from Bell in the past and will be intrigued by his latest book, wondering if they should be confused, angered, or surprised to hear that hell is not what they've been told. No doubt Rob Bell writes as a pastor who wants to care for people struggling with the doctrine of hell. I, too, write as a pastor. And as a pastor, I know that love wins means God's people lose. In the world of love wins, my congregation should not sing in Christ alone because they cannot, uh, because they cannot believe. There on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They would not belt out, bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned he stood, no place for stricken, smitten, and afflicted with its confession. The deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. The jubilation, no condemnation I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, is muted in love winds. The bad news of our wrath-deserving wretchedness is so absent that the good news of God's wrath-bearing substitute cannot sing in our hearts. When God is shrunk down to fit our cultural constraints, the cross is diminished, and wherever the cross is diminished, we pain the hearts of God's people and rob them of their joy. Just as damaging is the, Im- is the impact of love wins on the non-believer or the wayward former churchgoer, instead of summoning sinners to the cross that they might flee the wrath to come and know the satisfaction of so great a salvation, love wins assures people that everyone's eternity ends up as heaven eventually. The second chances are good not just for this life but for the next time, for the next. And what if they aren't? What if Jesus says on the on the day of judgment depart from me I never knew you Matthew 7:23. What if at the end of the age the wicked and the unbelieving cry out fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb Revelation 6:16. 6, What if outside the walls of the New Jerusalem are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood? Revelation 22.15 What if there really is only one name under heaven given by which men must be saved? Acts 4.12 And what if the wrath of God really remains on those who do not believe in the Son of God? John 3.18 and 36 If love wins is wrong... If the theology departs from the apostolic good deposit of the biblical reasoning falls short in a hundred places, if the God of love wins and the and the gospel of love wins are profoundly mistaken, if all of this is true, then what damage has been done to the souls of men and women? Bad theology hurts people. So of all the questions raised in the book, the most important question every reader must answer is this. Is it true? Whatever you think, of all the personalities involved on whatever side of the debate, 
That's the one question that cannot be ignored. Is love wins true to the Word of God? That's the issue. Open a Bible. Pray to God. Listen to the faithful Christians of the past 2,000 years and answer the question for yourself. Delight or deception, suffering or salvation, yes, even heaven or hell may actually hang in the balance. We're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning photo-written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Sermon review time. I got a shorter sermon today because I ran long. Thankfully, it's shorter. It it ain't a good one. Got to warn you ahead of time. But it's so bad, it makes for a, a good foil, if you know what I mean. Alright, let's cue up the sermon review music.
The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the City Community Church, Indianapolis, Indiana. Name of the sermon, The Story of Two, preached by Pastor Eric. They have two pastors there, Nathan and Eric, and this one is preached by Eric. If I'm remembering correctly, yep, I'm right. If you remember, there was a sermon we reviewed here. It was really awful by one of their uh, women, uh, Tara Gentry, entitled Scribbles Neverland. This is that same church. If you want to have your Bibles open, um, Eric is going to try to preach something relevant to Luke chapter 9, the feeding of the 5,000. So if you want to flip on over there and be ready, um, I'm going to spend a little bit of time in that text. But what you're listening for here, um, this kind of goes into the category of just because somebody has an open Bible doesn't actually mean they're actually doing biblical preaching. See if anything he says has any connection to the text that he's preaching on at all. And if he even properly understands law and gospel like at all. Yeah, that's, that's enough said. Let's, uh, I'm going to kill the music. You know, somebody sent me an email and said, you know, Chris, you commit murder every day when on your show. And I <laughs> really, yeah. When you say kill the music, you're murdering it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So without any further ado, here is the story of two, uh, by Eric Cooper of, um, uh, the, uh, is it city community church in Indianapolis, Indiana? Here we go. Starting a brand new series today called, uh, well, I'll let the video announce it for us, all right? You guys can run the video up top. It just makes you wonder if they stole this from me because I've reviewed their sermons before. I I mean, I'd hate to take credit where, you know, I shouldn't be taking credit, but isn't that kind of odd? And here's the question I have. What does this music have to do with the sermon as you listen to the sermon you're going to ask yourself why did they play that music at the beginning of it i i don't get that anybody remember that song i do anybody i know do. where that song comes from i do i know where, shout it out rocky and bullwinkle Oh, hey, somebody actually knew the title of the song, Fractured Fairy Tales, from what cartoon? What's that? Shout it out. Don't be, don't be shy. Rocky and Bullwinkle. Anybody ever watch Rocky and Bullwinkle? I did. I did. I used to love the Peabody and Sherman sketches. They were just hilarious. Gosh, I'm showing my age this morning, I guess. You know, it happens to the best of us. It kind of asks the question. I mean, I, <laughs> What does Rocky and Bullwinkle of Fractured Fairy Tales have to do with, um, you know, preaching God's Word? It just makes you wonder. And what does this have to do with the sermon? I have no idea, but, you know, let's continue. I was, I was telling Nathan over the, over, during the course of the week, we were talking about the launch of this series. I remember watching Rocky and Bullwinkle every morning before school. And uh, I, would, I would sit. We had those little heaters in our house that uh, were in the floor. And in the wintertime when it was cold, I remember sitting by the little heaters on the floor watching Rocky, Bull, Rocky and Bullwinkle and Bozo the Clown every, every, every day before school. So that, that was just a little jaunt down memory lane. But we're launching a new series today called The Story of Two. And we're really excited about this new series. Um, 
which basically is going to be looking at stories of powerful one-on-one relationships that we see throughout Scripture. What? (laughs) Powerful one-on-one relationships in Scripture. Yeah, I've, I have, wow, until this uh, sermon came out, I'd never even known that such a topic could be preached on, but uh, let's continue. Okay, we're going to be looking at Elijah and Elisha, Moses and Aaron. We're going to be looking at uh, Ruth and Naomi. We're going to be looking at all kinds of different stories from Scripture of people who entered into one-on-one connections and one-on-one relationships with, with one another and what those stories teach us and how they apply to our everyday lives. And so today... Is it me or does it just sound like this sermon is like the sermon series? The whole thing is like doomed from the start. I mean, we're going to psychologize different dynamic duos in the Bible. Mm -hmm. My job is to kind of launch the series. And so we're not going to look specifically at one of those stories today. We're going to look at kind of a broader topic. And I'm hopefully going to kind of paint a little bit of a picture for what's going to happen over the course of the next few weeks and the next few months. See, it's Nathan and I's contention that... Sunday mornings are good. Gathering you guys here in this kind of an environment, this is a good thing where we can all gather together as the body of Christ. We can celebrate, we can sing, we can hear practical, applicable teaching that hopefully will walk from... Now, we're not going to hear the Word of God. We're just going to hear practical, applicable teaching. Yeah, forget actually preaching the Word of God. We're just going to skip all of that and just get to the practical, applicable stuff. From here into the 167 of your lives. We believe in small groups, okay? And a number of you have taken advantage of the small groups that are available here at City Community Church to get, you know, in more close one-on-one relationship. They believe in small groups, okay? I I believe in Christ in whom crucified for our sins. They believe in small groups. I don't think that's what they mean, but, you know. ...ships with a group of people. Uh, We we believe in, in interact opportunities, in connection opportunities for you guys to get out, connect with the city, interact, you know, fold shirts at Wheeler Mission, you know, volunteer at the Julian Center. We believe in all of these types of opportunities. But the question we've been asking is, even with the beauty of all of that stuff, what would happen if we could create a a, a culture, an underlying culture of one-on-one relationships and personal responsibility when it comes to... If you could pull that off, you'd have a bunch of sinners who got along well together, and they still may actually be going to hell. Yeah, well, I don't know what it is with these guys. You know, when it's you know they're they're always you know trying to pitch for life change, and the way they always pitch it is, what would ha- could you imagine what would happen if could you imagine what would happen if we if we all finally were obedient to God? Yeah, then we wouldn't need Jesus. Um, <laughs> it's like anyway. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I like to counter these kinds of questions. Like, could you imagine what would happen if this pastor actually did his job? You know, preach the word in Christ and Him crucified for our sins, instead of psychologizing the texts and and only focusing on the things that he deems to be applicable. You know, could you imagine how different it would be if you know our growth in Christ? So I'm going to let you chew on that a little bit today. So today we're going to kind of launch off into this topic, and uh, I'm going to. Well, I'm going to throw myself under the bus a little bit this morning, all right? Self-deprecation is always good when you're trying to make a point, okay? Yeah, just because you call it self-deprecation doesn't change the fact that you're leading off your sermon by preaching about yourself. Not a good way to start a sermon, by the way. Okay, and I brought some props with me today, all right? I, I, uh, I got a couple of stories to tell, all right? When, when I was a kid, um, 
Well, let's just say my, my mom and dad are here, all right? And so I, I want to make sure I, I honor my folks, all right? They, they are here. They are part of, of the core team that helped us launch City Community Church. But I, I also grew up in an environment with, with a mom and dad who, who sheltered me a little bit. And, and this wasn't always a, a, a bad thing, okay? This, this, this was a very good thing. But, you know, my, my mom and dad for, for eight years, was it eight years you guys tried to have me? So you were just waiting. You were just waiting for the goods to come, all right? But eight years... They, they tried to have uh, kids before I came, so eight years. And then after I was born, it was another 10 years, another decade, until my tall, lanky, six-foot-five brother who led worship down here uh, came into the world, all right? So I was really raised in, in, I was really raised as an only child. I was raised as an only child. Darren was kind of raised as an only child. And so in, in, in that kind of an environment, I'll just be honest with you, I never, I never had a lot of responsibilities, around the house. Um, I never, ever washed the dishes, ever, once. I don't ever remember having to clean the dishes off after dinner and put them in the, uh, in the dishwasher. I never, never once. And, and honestly, until I went to college, never once did I do a load of laundry. Not something I'm proud of, just, just reality. I never... <laughs> Is this a confession of sins? I mean, seriously. Wow, I'm so glad you threw yourself under the bus here. What a transparent moment. Yeah. Yep, I'm so glad Jesus died on the cross for that. This isn't... This is ridiculous. I did a load of laundry until I went to college. And then, in all honesty, if you timed it right, I was in Tennessee, if you timed it right, you, you could just save it and come home on a weekend and just bring, bring the bag with you. So really, I never, even, even in college, I, I never really did a lot of laundry, which thank God my wife is working in children's ministry today because when I got married, that created a little bit of, of an interesting dilemma for me, okay? And, and all of you guys are, are chuckling, laughing kind of under your breath because you know where this is going, right? See, I, when, when, when my wife and I first got married, and, and in all honesty, if I'm completely vulnerable with you, even sometimes still to this. Yeah, please just be completely vulnerable. I, I can just feel your vulnerability. It's helping to break down barriers as we speak. So your big sin is that you never did laundry. Really? Can we, can we actually talk about a real sin? I can walk into the kitchen in our home and see a counter full of dirty dishes like these. Well, these aren't dirty because that, that would have been gross. But I, I can walk in, into the kitchen, see a, a, a counter full of dishes like this and be completely oblivious to it. Oh, gasp. I, I, all of my listeners, just the, I could hear the sucking sound. Oh, no, this is terrible. He's going to hell. Like it's not even there. I can walk into the family room after my wife has done 40 loads of laundry for me and her and our three kids, and I can see a pile of, of clean clothes that have been through the laundry like this, and I can just step over it, go onto the couch, and watch the Colts game. Just being straight up with you. Do you think Jesus died for that? I'm curious. 
And a big piece of that goes back to the fact that I never had those responsibilities growing up. I, I never, I never did. I, n- I never did. So because truly, this is a sign of your sinful nature. I had never been shown those responsibilities. I was just kind of oblivious to the fact that they were even there. It's like it's like <laughs> kind of like he's oblivious of what his job actually is as a pastor. It's like they're not even there. It's like they're invisible. And my contention is. A lot of us struggle with those types of things. Maybe not with... Yeah, you know, that's the big thing that Christianity solves. The big problem about guys leaving their underwear on the floor. Whew, I sure am so happy that we have a Savior for that. Kitchen utensils and dirty laundry. But a lot of us struggle to be oblivious to things that we have never taken responsibility for. Sometimes it's because we're lazy. Yeah, yeah, because that's the problem. I mean, honestly, you know, sometimes I can just step right over the dirty laundry because I just don't want to see it and I don't want to deal with it. Uh, do, I, do, do I have a witness? Do I have anyone want to say an amen to that? You know what? Uh, early on when I spent some time in some of the... Uh, the more legalistic churches, we would have testimony time. And usually the guys that would get up and talk about what they had been saved from, it was a lot. <laughs> I have, I, when I was younger, I never once heard a guy get up and say, man, before I came to the Lord, man, got to tell you, I was a chronic leave my laundry on the floor guy. Yeah, the, it, it escalated from there to like not cleaning the dishes Eventually, I, I stopped mowing the lawn altogether, man, and, like, there were weeds everywhere. I, I'm so ashamed of how bad things actually get. I, I, one summer, I was going to paint my house, and I didn't get around to it. And, and then we got dry rot. But thankfully, the Lord has radically saved me, and, and now I, I, cl- I pick up my wife's underwear off the floor you know, when it's there, and... And I always do the dishes so that nobody else, yeah, ooh, thank Jesus for saving me from, you know, being such a, a, low, a low-life scum who left his underwear on the floor. Yeah, um, no, usually the testimonies I heard were about guys who were, you know, were sleeping around, you know, on, strung out on drugs, you know, alcoholics, and, you know, they had some real sins that they were really struggling with here. But, I mean, I'm so glad that, City Community Church in Indianapolis, that they're tackling head-on that big, horrible bane on human society. You know, I mean, you can actually, I mean, if if it wasn't for them, the entire moral fabric of the United States would completely unravel. But thankfully, because of their bold stand against guys leaving their underwear on the uh, carpet, yeah, you can just feel America just healing morally and People drawing closer to Jesus. I mean, seriously, I mean, if that's really all there is to being a Christian is picking your underwear up off the floor and doing the dishes from time to time, well, then holiness is within your grasp. Just reach out and take it. You know, sometimes sometimes it's because I'm lazy, but, but sometimes it's because, does anybody else have the issue of not liking to do things that you're not naturally gifted at? Does anybody, does anybody else have that issue? An issue. We're dealing with issues now. Okay. Yeah, see? All males. They're all males. Well, duh. Guys are 
born with Dame Bramage. But, but if I don't feel competent in an area of my life, I'll just stay away from it. You know, and, and those of you who've been around here for the last year, year and a half, you know that I'm not real handy around the house. Like for instance, I'll give you a for instance in my life. Our fence in our backyard, it's, it's about 10 years old. We, we, we built it when we moved in, or we built it. We, we had someone build it. That's kind of the problem. You know, I can see a new slogan for, you know, Home Depot or Lowe's. Uh, being a fix-it man is next to godliness. I mean, yeah, you just the, the marketing potentials here are, are just huge. But, you know, it's, 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 kind of, it's kind of worn, you know. It's starting to warp after, you know, almost a decade of being out in the hot sun and then the, the cold. It needs massive repairs. And so I'm competent enough to take the, the hammer and nail and go out and, and, you know, reattach a couple of slats. But, but this thing's getting beyond that stage, you know. I mean, it's- well, you obviously are not experiencing progressive sanctification because if you were truly progressing in your sanctification, you'd be spending your Saturdays at, uh, at uh, Home Depot when they're uh, do-it-yourself fix-it classes, learning how to properly take care of such problems. See, you know, that's the next level of your sanctification. If you're a really good do-it-yourselfer, yeah. And, you know, and if you watch the Home and Garden Channel and those, like, you know, how-to-fix-it kind of programs, it's starting to warp. It really needs to be pulled up. The concrete needs to be pulled up and relayed. I don't have the slightest idea how to do that. So it's a responsibility that I have that I just kind of avoid because I, I, I just don't know what to do with it. Sometimes we're lazy. Sometimes we feel incompetent. Sometimes we've just never been given the responsibility, so we're oblivious to it. We don't even see it. And sometimes I think that's what happens in our church settings as well. All right? I know this. I grew up in church. Pack your bags. We are going on a guilt trip. All right? I've been, uh, I've been through the process. I, I know how it all works. Some, some of you are here today for a plethora of different reasons. You know, some of you are here to check off your religious obligations. Some of you are here because you grew up in church and you just wanted to find one maybe that was a little, you know, different than maybe where you came from. It sounds like he's okay with the people that are there just to click off their religious obligations. (laughs) I I don't know. There's a whole slew of reasons that you're here. You know, you like like the music. You like the speaking. They they take good care of your kids. You like that we're meeting in a central library. But I, I bet very few of you are here today because you're going, I wonder how I can take responsibility for some people that are part of this community. Oh, man, I... I'm wow. These are the kind of sermons that just get under my skin. This is deathly quiet. That's because you gave everybody a guilt trip. So, what I want us to do is take a look at an interesting piece of scripture. For those of you who grew up, boy, he made a good run up at it, didn't he? And then he decided to back off. Maybe we better get some scripture to back this uh, th- this uh, thing up here. Uh. Around the church. And don't you like our, our logo that Rachel did for us? It looks a little like the flannel graphs. If you grew up in church, like the flannel graphs from Sunday school. So every week we're going to add new flannel, you know, to I think to the logo. But uh, I'm not sure which one of those is Nathan and which one is me. Um, but uh, anyway, so I want us to take a look at some scripture. If, if, you've, if you've been around church for a while, you may have heard this story. If not, it's cool because some of the people who think they know all about this story, they really don't know either. They, they just, you know, like to make you think that. So he's going to demonstrate to us that he really knows what this passage of scripture is all about. Keep that in mind. He's claiming 
Other people don't know what it's about, but he does, and he's going to let you in on the skinny. Okay? Cannot wait to hear uh, these fine exegetical points that you're going to be plumbing for us in the heart of this fantastic text found in Luke chapter 9. So please, you know, share with us your exegetical skill. So we're going to open your Bibles, if, if you've got yours, and uh, we're going to look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And again, this may, this possibly could be a familiar story to some of you. Um, but if not, come go on the journey with us here, okay? Just to give you a little setup, Jesus had just sent his 12 disciples out on their first quote-unquote missionary journey, all right? He sent them out two by two, the story of two, all right? He had sent them out in twos, and they had gone out for the first time to take the gospel and the message of Christ into the community and uh, into the different areas and cities around, uh, around Jerusalem, around Israel, and they are just reporting back, all right? So where we're going to pick up the story, they're just reporting back to Jesus for the first time. If you can pick it up in... 9.10, and I'm going to be reading to you out of the message translation. So if you don't have a Bible, just... So the message what? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> yeah, Eric, uh, I don't know how to break this to you, but um, the message ain't a translation, like not even close, you know. Um, paraphrase is even even being too generous when describing the, quote, message. You really shouldn't be preaching from the message, Eric. Yeah, yeah. Accuracy matters when it comes to God's Word. Follow it. They'll put it up on the screen. It says, The apostles returned, and they reported on what they had done. And Jesus took them away, off by themselves, near the town called Bethsaida. We had the the incredible opportunity to go to Israel back in April, Nathan and I did. And we actually got to see this area. And Israel is just fascinating in so many ways. But you'll go from old ruins to desert to mountains, and then this area of Israel around the Sea of Galilee, it's lush. I mean, it's lush, rolling hillsides, looks like Napa Valley, you know, just, it's just absolutely gorgeous. And so that's, that's where they are. That's where, that's where uh, Jesus and his disciples have found themselves, in the town called Bethsaida, which actually we drove through Bethsaida. It's the area where a lot of Jesus' disciples were from. It's the area where, if you read in Scripture, where he called his disciples to come follow him. Uh, many of them were from the town of Bethsaida, and that's where that story took place. It says, but the crowds got wind and followed. So Jesus, here he is. They, they've, they've been on this missionary journey. They're tired. You know, they're, they're ready to just get away and rest for a little while. And the crowds got wind that Jesus and his disciples had gone to Bethsaida, and they followed them. You know, when you're, when you're going around teaching people things that they've never heard before, when you're healing them of diseases, you know, when you're, when you're doing miraculous things like that, the people, people will follow you. And uh, that's, that's what happened to Jesus and disciples. It says, Jesus graciously welcomed them and talked to them about the kingdom of God and those who needed healing, he healed. So Jesus and his disciples, they're trying to get away up in the lush area of Bethsaida and all of the people, they just find him and they're, they're pressing in and they're gathering around because they just, they wanna see Jesus. They wanna be with Jesus. They wanna touch Jesus. And in verse 12, it says, as the day declined, the 12 said, dismiss the crowd so they can go to the farms or villages around here and get, room, get a room for the night and a bite to eat because we're out in the middle of nowhere. All right, so Jesus' disciples, they're pretty astute, okay? 
Jesus is off doing ministry. He's healing people. He's teaching people. You know, I like to imagine the Bible says that Jesus loved children. The kids were probably climbing up on his shoulders. He, Jesus was just doing what Jesus did. And the disciples, they're kind of watching the sun go down over the, the hillsides, and they're starting to think, you know, these people have been here all day. They haven't had anything to eat. There's no place for them to sleep. Uh, we we got we to gotta tell Jesus, you know, uh, it's time to deal with this issue. So, so they go to Jesus, and they're like, look, you know, these people, they're, they're going to be hungry. We need to send them to the towns and villages where people are prepared to deal with this kind of an issue, you know? I mean, we're, we're, we're just 12 guys out on the hillside. With we don't even have money. You know, we don't have anything. So let's send them to the people who can handle the situation, the people who are prepared to deal with this, with this issue. And look what Jesus says to them in the next verse. I love this. I just imagine Jesus just liked to, to mess with people. I, I think he really did sometimes. I think, I think he probably just kind of had this half, half smirk on his face in, in verse 13. He looks at his disciples and he says, you feed them. Now, I'm no expert, but I'm trying to imagine 12 guys you know, they've given up everything to follow Jesus. They, they probably don't have more than two nickels to rub together. And Jesus looks at them, and, and, and Scripture tells us there were 5,000 people, but some scholars believe that that's only accounting for the men, that there was actually, on top of the 5,000 men, that there, was, there could have been women and children. There could have been 10, 15, 20,000 people lined across this hillside. And Jesus looks at his 12 poor disciples who have given up everything, and he says to them, you feed them. And his disciples respond exactly how I would respond. <laughs> they said, we couldn't scrape up more than five loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Unless, of course, you want us to go to town ourselves and buy food for everybody. There were more than 5,000 people in the crowd. And some translations actually say that they said a year's worth of wages could not feed all of these people. Yet Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you feed them. Okay. So there's a pile of dirty laundry on the floor. And Jesus is telling them. He's going to stop right there. Wow. Let's listen for just a smidge before I correct him. To deal with it. I want you to do something that's probably going to make you a little bit uncomfortable. Okay, before he makes me any more uncomfortable than I already am. <laughs> oh my, that's horrible. <laughs> ah! You have your Bible, uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 10. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, "'Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages,' For we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, "Um, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless 
uh, we are to go and buy food for all of these people. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And then taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set before the crowd. And they all ate, and they were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ of God. Do you think Peter's confession of Jesus being the Christ has anything remotely to do with the fact that Jesus just miraculously fed 5,000 men and their women and children out in the wilderness? You bet your bippy it has something to do with it because it's connected to the story. That was a miraculous sign that blew the disciples away to the point where where Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what the text says. And he's basically stopped and paused partway through the story about Jesus, this amazing sign that Jesus gave that shows that he's the Son of God. And he's he stopped and where Jesus said, no, you feed them. And then changes the subject and says, so now you've got a pile of dirty laundry on the floor. Jesus says you need to do something about it. Was it the disciples who fed the 5,000? Or was it Jesus? Think about it. We continue. Which we like to do around here from time to time. But I just want you to, to look around the room. Just just spin around, look around the room. If you're down front, if you're in the back, you got, you got it easy because you don't even have to turn around, all right? I just want you guys to look around the room, wave at each other. There you go. There's probably 130, 140 people in here, probably another 30, 40 kids that are in our children's ministry. You know, there's probably 180, 190 people here today. It's just a part of this community. What if you took responsibility for somebody else? Oh, man. Didn't he say that he was going to, that people thought they knew what the story was about, that he's going to show us? Well, apparently the thing he found in the story that nobody else has found, this is all about us taking responsibility for each other. Only if you're from Mars. Just saying. What if, what if, what if you took responsibility for somebody else? Yeah, that's really funny because Jesus is the one who ultimately took responsibility for the crowd, not the disciples. Here today. Have you ever even thought about that before? I, uh, 
I do have a story of two to share with you today. And uh, I think Sean's got a picture put up on the screen. Look at that. You recognize those guys? Yeah, get your fill, get your chuckle. That's about a, a, a 12-year-old picture of me and a guy named Nathan LaGrange. And, and I think... So we've segued back into his life. Lovely. The, the, that's all right. Hey, it's funny, isn't it? It's pretty funny. I think the weight Nathan lost, I, I put on. I, lo- I love those glasses too, you know? I, I don't know what Nathan had been smoking at that point, but, um, but anyway. No, uh, this, is, uh, this is Nathan and I circa late 90s, okay? And uh, the first time Mandy and I met Nathan and Trish, they walked into a new married or a newly married Sunday school class that my wife and I were leading. And uh, Nathan was kind of, did you just take a picture of that to post? Yeah, all right. Check Facebook later. Um, but Nathan and Trish, they walked, they walked into the, they, they walked into this, this Sunday school class that my wife and I were leading. And I remember, you know, Nathan was still, you know, even in that body, he was still kind of the brash personality that he is today. I was more of the, the kind of shy church kid. And Nathan had been a Christian for all of about two months, the first time I'd met him. And he was still as raw as you can possibly imagine. And, you know, over the course of, you know, a few months, we, we kind of hit it off our friendship and, you know, we, we would do things with our, with our young married small group. And we, you know, we'd go hang out at people's houses and we, we started to build a relationship uh, with the LaGranges. And I remember one day Nathan coming to me and saying, you know, I, I grew up Catholic and, and we were, we were always told never to open our Bible, that we just weren't smart enough to ingest it. And so he said, you know, here I am 24, 25 years old, I've never really read scripture for myself. Would you be willing to come meet with me once or twice a week before work and just let's talk through some of this stuff because I, I, I'm hungry to know more about God, but I don't even know how to, how to open scripture and look at it. And this was back when I was still an accountant working for my dad's uh, firm and uh, Nathan was a marketing uh, guy at St. Vincent Hospital. And so we would drive in every morning to our church, and we'd meet in the choir room together. And Nathan was this young, brash, you know, raw, new Christian. And he just peppered me with questions about God's word. And we would go through God's word together. And let me tell you something. See, I, I was the, I was kind of the, the sheltered, overeducated church kid. I'd been through all the Sunday school classes. I'd been through all the flannel graphs, stories, you know, of uh, Moses and, you know, Aaron and the escape from Egypt. I, I knew it all, but let me tell you something. Something really, really special began to happen because Nathan thought he was coming to me for help. And actually, I think I got the better end of the bargain. And I've had people come to me over the course of the last six months I actually had a guy ask me, when, when did your relationship with Christ really take off? When did it really begin to 
you know, to move forward. You know, you'd grown up in the church and this guy was kind of like me and he had grown up in the church as well. But he was saying, you know, you know, I know all of the stuff. I know all of the stories. You know, we're in church every week. You know, we're in small group. We're nice and connected. All of our friendships and relationships are, are built around the local church. But when, when did your relationship take a step beyond that and really begin to come alive in a new and a fresh way? And you know, honestly, when it did, was when Nathan and I began to take responsibility for one another. And let me tell you, I don't think you'd be sitting here in in the library today if we hadn't started meeting a couple of times a week 14 years ago when we looked like dorks. I like to think we aged well. You know, (laughs) I look at old pictures of us. I'm like, wow, you know, age was good. It was really good to us. Can you stop preaching about yourself and actually get back to the text and show how this miraculous sign is instrumental in Peter confessing Jesus Christ as the Son of God? But, you know, I had a lot of excuses when Nathan first came to me. You know, honestly, you know, we were at a good church, a big church with lots of programs, you know, and my first thought was, well, we need to get him, we need to get him in a discipleship class. True. Good. Yeah. You know, we, we, uh, we need to get him, you know, maybe connected with, uh, you know, with, with the worship ministry. And, and really that's where Nathan and I, the next phase of our relationship really, really took off was he was a, a singer and I was a musician and it, it just kind of, it kind of took off from there. But, but you know, the, the first... the first Just want to remind you all, none of this actually appears in the biblical text, especially not in Luke 9. The excuses that I had run through my mind was, there are people here that are much more qualified than me. What, what do I know, you know? I, what if I tell them something that's wrong, you know? <laughs> I also thought, man, I don't want to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, you know? I mean, that's... Uh, that's just a lot to ask. I mean, I like this guy, but really, you know, I mean, come on, you know, really to, to get up that early. I, I, I really didn't feel like that was something that I could sacrifice and do. But I'm telling you today, the story of two is a story that God wants to bring alive inside of your life. Um, how can you be so sure about that? Because the story you read really isn't about the story of two. The story you read is actually about Jesus Christ and what he does for us. You know, just saying. You know, come to church. Come sit in an auditorium like this full of people. This is great. This is where we can celebrate. This is where we can worship God corporately together. This is good. This is right. Get in a small group. Get around some other people who are like-minded, who want to open up Scripture, who want to open up aspects of life and talk about them. But even in a small group, you can still... Aspects of your life do not Scripture make. You can still hide a little bit. What happens when we connect with one another in a one-on-one connection and relationship is something that can't happen in any other environment or any other way. And so Nathan and I have been asking the question, what would happen, you know, if we still have great weekend services, if 
We still have incredible small groups that are meeting and, and discipling and building connections and relationships, you know? What if, we, what if we still connect people in relationship and friendship with one another and help them build relationships with other like-minded believers? What if we get people out into the communities, you know, volunteering and serving and becoming the hands and feet of Christ in the, in the 167 of life? What if, we, what if we continue to pursue all of those outlets and aspects and then underneath it all, we can create this culture of one-on-one accountability and one-on-one relationship because I'm telling you. Will people go to heaven if they do that? Will that save them from the wrath of God and the fires of hell? It changed my life, and it changed Nathan's life as well. I I want us to finish this scripture. They can pop it back up on the screen. Because I know what a lot of you are thinking. You know, you're thinking a lot of different things. You're thinking, how, how do I do this? I'm not, I'm not equipped to do this. What if I do it wrong? You know? Look what, look what Jesus did after he commanded his disciples to feed the people. He didn't just let them figure it out on their own. Pick it up in verse 14. I'm sorry. Yeah, the end of verse 14. It says, but he went ahead and directed his disciples, sit them down in groups of about 50. And they did what he said and soon had everyone seated. He took the five loaves and two fish. He lifted his face to heaven in prayer, blessed, broke, and gave the bread and fish to the disciples to hand out to the crowd. And after the people had eaten their fill, 12 baskets of leftovers were gathered up. See, when Jesus gives us a command, he he doesn't leave us to execute it on our own. Oh, man, that's what you got out of that? (sighs) Yeah, I I know. I'm sorry. Don't throw tomatoes at him. He's trying. I mean, (sighs) Eric, that is not what this text is about. Unbelievable. This was a miraculous sign that showed that Jesus is the Son of God, which means that he's God. Ugh, I just, unbelievable. This uh, text that's totally about Jesus, he flips it and makes it about us. Talk about narcissistic reading of the text. Good night. Should be playing Stephen Furtick's music. You're so vain. I bet you think this Bible passage is about you. You're so vain. So I just want to ask you today, what, what would happen if you started to take responsibility for somebody else here? <laughs> no. No. No, 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 no. Oh, this is horrible. This is just, ah. Uh. At CityCom, what would happen? You started meeting for coffee digging into scripture together, what would happen? You know, some of you who maybe are new to this whole thing of Christ, you need to find someone who is seasoned, someone who's been around for a while. Don't ask Eric for help because he doesn't seem to qualify. And you need to ask them to start spending some time with you. Some of you who have been around the church and the Bible and the things of God for a long time, you need to start looking for somebody 
who you can reinvest your life into. What would happen here at City Community Church if we started to invest in the stories? What would happen there at uh, City Community Church if they invested in some good commentaries or maybe sent you back to seminary or uh, sent you to a class on biblical hermeneutics? Or you know, what would happen there if you were ac- if you actually learned how to properly handle God's Word and to point out Christ and Him crucified for our sins from every text, to preach Jesus? Because you know, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you diligently search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life. You know, they are the very scriptures that testify about me, and you refuse to come to me that you might have life. The scriptures are about Jesus. That text is about Jesus. It ain't about you taking responsibility for somebody. Good night. Of two. What would happen if we stopped looking at all the dirty dishes on the counter? and just pretending that they weren't there. What would happen? We'd have cleaner kitchens. <laughs> if we shut the ball game off and folded some laundry. Then the laundry would get away, get put away quicker. You know, they have DVRs nowadays. I'm just saying. Okay, you can watch the ball game while you're folding laundry. Okay, I... I was so worried about that. I mean, you know, baseball season's almost here. I'm not asking you to be stupid here, okay? All right. So I just want you to ponder that. And over the course of the next weeks and months. Okay, I'll ponder it. Okay, I'm done. Months. We're going to look at some stories in Scripture and what they illuminate, what pictures they paint for us, and how they might affect us in, in our lives. Because we don't want you to just be here. Narcissistic reading of the text. Waiting for the church, to feed the people. What if, like Jesus said, ah, not like it's your job to actually feed the sheep. No, no, no. We don't want you coming here waiting for the church to feed the people. <sighs> no. To his disciples, you, you feed them. Who can you invest your life in today? Just chew on it. Yeah, uh, Okay, done. Let's pray. Done, 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 done. Oh, man, that was horrible. That, oh, yikes. Folks, you didn't, that was not a biblical sermon. I know he read a passage from the message quote translation, but that text is about Jesus. Go back and read it for yourself, because immediately following that miracle, you have the apostle Peter proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. It's about Jesus and what he's done for you. When you read your story into it and turn every Bible passage into something that needs to be relevant and applicable to your life, this is what happens. I'm sorry, but not every passage is relevant and applicable to your life in the, in the way that that means you have to get up and do something. No, it's relevant and applicable that you need to hear this. You need to hear what Jesus did. You need to hear how Jesus proved who he was, and you need to hear what Jesus did for you. Stop talking about yourself. Let's talk about Jesus. It always amazes me that these guys, they always use Jesus as their shield. Stop critiquing us. We're just showing us, you're just telling people about Jesus. No, you are not. You're telling people about themselves and yourself. 
Oy. You know, I just, you know, I, I, I feel like there should be some kind of a moratorium on, you know, in sermons using the first person personal, uh, first person personal pronoun, I or me. Yeah, there should be, you no, know, I, I don't want to hear about you. I want to hear about Jesus. Get out of his way and tell me about him. Stop telling me about yourself. Unbelievable. Un- un- unbelievable. All right. Now that I've collected myself, I feel much better now that I've got that all out. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions. You know the drill. Go visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on one of them. Fill it all out. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. It's about him and what he did for you. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. Good night. Good night.